We ran out after our students. Car pulled up, popped the door open. It was like, do you know the movie Boys in the Hood? It felt like that movie Boys in the Hood. Yeah. And the, yeah, I wasn't sure if it was a gun or not, but I was close enough that they shot. All we could do was, at the time, was just pull our kids. We're like, we're just yelling at our like 15 kids to get back into the school and telling those three cars, like, it's good, just leave, just leave, friend. Welcome to the Will and Lee Show. Hi, this is Will Chang, and today I have my co-host Lee. Hey, Will, how's it going? Today, we have Mike Marr. I've known Mike since I was pretty much a kid in college. He was a fifth year, and I was a freshman when we pledged a fraternity together. He was my pledge captain, and I've always looked up to him as an older brother for the last 17 years. I respect his values his principles, the way he carries himself, and the way he treats others. Our fraternity sends a newsletter that interviews a notable and accomplished alumnus every month. It's an Asian American fraternity out of UCLA, so every month we get an interview of an engineer, lawyer, or a consultant. When Mike was spotlighted, it really stood out, and a lot of guys I talked to told me it was their favorite one. There was so much passion and conviction in the profession he chose. Today, Mike is an academic counselor at the San Francisco Unified School District at Balboa High School. I just wanted to share a taste of how he described his job in the interview before we get started. So this is Mike. It's amazing working with my students. It's like they still believe in Santa Claus. There's a spark of light in them that's hard to put into words, and I have the honor to guide them towards adulthood and prepare them for the next step. It's definitely emotionally draining at times, but I appreciate what I have, that I'm alive, and that I'm still able to live in San Francisco. My job gives me purpose. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Will. Appreciate you guys having me on here. Hope everything's going well for you guys. So I, first, I wanted to get started with your family, especially your grandfather. How did your family get to San Francisco? On my dad's side, my grandpa immigrated. I don't know exactly what year, but... He immigrated to the United States as a paper son. Those who don't know what that is, he was adopted and the family used fake papers to get him into this country. His original last name wasn't Mar. I actually don't know what it is anymore, but the adopted side family is Ma. And so that's what we took on Mar from the last name. But yeah, he came into the country like at least like 1930-ish, settled in San Francisco, and grew up here, joined the army at 16. I think that's when he like really perfected his English. He didn't speak with any accent. And I just remember moving from, from there, like from my dad's side, they spoke mainly English. And then on my mom's side, I know my grandpa came over first. He got injured in a freak car accident where he had to amputate his arm. Two choices either moving back to China they might have saved his arm out there, but if he moved back to China, he would have had no arm. So at the time, if you're a handicap, you're pretty much useless, uh, lack of better words. So he decided to bring my grandma over. She worked her tail off, shrimp factory, sewing clothes, like just hustling and grinding. Definitely two different sides of the story of coming to the States, but they came in roughly between the 1930s and 1950s into San Francisco. 
I know growing up, you were a third degree black belt and you taught at your family's dojo. You were also a junior national Taekwondo champion. What was that like? Actually got to do a little quick editing, not really a national champion. I, I won one in forms, but that's, we don't really count that. It's fighting or nothing. Forms is just to get used to the mat. But thank you. So you gave me too much credit for the championship part. As a black belt, it was tough growing up in a, the family dojo. The building that I live in, which on my mom's side, this is the building that she bought, grinded, was actually my uncle's first martial arts studio. That was like in the 1970s and then the 1980s. He taught around the YMCA, taught around the Bay Area, opened up a school, which has been uh, open since 1986. And so growing up in the family, like, this is like the family's trade. And so I sucked. And so it was always like tough, like being compared to my cousin. He was really good. All our family, my brother was really good. All my little cousins were really good. There was a lot of pressure to participate in martial arts. And I just did it because I had to. And that's just the rules. You just do it until <laughs> you're 18 and then you can do something else. Mike, how did your uncle get into the, the Taekwondo business? Ethnically, you guys aren't Korean, right? Like, what was the decision process behind that? That, I'm not too sure. He studied Hapkido and Judo. I don't know why exactly why he picked Hapkido, but his instructor, he taught it in Korea. It was a form of a military martial arts that was taught in the army. It's just a certain type of Hapkido, Sinmu Hapkido. And my uncle and him just gravitate to one another. I think my uncle even sponsored him and bring him over to the States and brought Simu Hapkido out here. But don't quote me on that. But I don't know why exactly why he chose Hapkido and in Taekwondo. He just was immersed with the culture. Tell us a little bit about your parents. What, was, what were your parents like growing up? Oh, man. They were amazing people. My dad, very friendly. If, if you ever met him... He's like the coolest dad you'll want to have to be with. But for me personally, it was just tough because he was more like a friend than actually a dad dad sometimes. My mom, hardworking, like I mentioned, like on my mom's side, working since she was like five years old and just grinding and saving every penny, very loving and caring. And both of them combined were very generous people. It's interesting, even though we're Americanized, we didn't do a lot of hugging still like it's still weird it was weird up into maybe adulthood but i would say going through the process you always think the grass is greener people have it better but then as you get older where i'm at now i look back i'm like hey they did the best they could do times are rough sometimes but overall we made it so it was pretty good i know it's difficult with your your father right yeah, so a um, little bit more about my dad. He was schizophrenic and bipolar, and I didn't understand that growing up. The mental health aspect did not understand that growing up. It wasn't talked about in our family. It's not talked about in the Asian culture or in, in general. And learning that he had this illness, there's sometimes he'll have his manic states where he's very up, very hyper. He'll be up all night, and then because he's up all night, he doesn't sleep. And he'll think, at one time I remember he was thinking like the feds were after us. And being young, you would believe that. Like, why would he lie? And, you know, kind of found out later on that he was sick. And it was just a little tough back then too as well. I remember 
being around 10 or 11 and my uncle, my mom's brother was telling me, hey, your dad's not, you, know, you physically have to be the man of the house or mentally you have to be the man of the house. So it was a little tough. I did what I had to do. Like it, it was definitely tough. Like I was mad at my dad for a long time. I would say I was like mad up to him to the day he passed away. I think that was like, gosh, I was like 27, 28. And I used to blame a lot of things on him. But as I got older and, and had kids of my own, I realized he did as best he could with what he was going through. So I definitely appreciate everything he did. I wish, we always wish things could be better. But in hindsight, for him to raise uh, me and my brother and what he was going through was the best he could do at the time. Did he get any sort of treatment for that? Or you were saying it was a denial thing. I know how you know Asian Americans sometimes see it as very taboo to talk about mental health. So was there any help that he got? And did that, or was this just something that wasn't spoken around the house? You guys just try to deal with it as a family. My mom dealt with it a lot more. It was as young as I was like six years old. I think he attempted to hurt himself. I think he was on the 5150. And I, and I vaguely remember visiting him at the hospital. I don't remember how long he was there for. And at the time as well, too, we didn't understand mental health. We thought, hey, take your meds, be cool. You can power away you through it. It's mind over matter. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of support from my immediate family because I don't think they understood either. As he was getting better, we were still hurt. And so then maybe could also re-trigger of him not getting better. And I didn't understand this until later on, a lot later on. But so that was one of the biggest issues. He might be taking his meds for a week or two and fine and feeling great and then get off his meds and then the cycle starts all over again. And so I think on the flip side, my mom was working so much and she was so stressed out. She actually develops thyroid, which I later learned is caused also from depression. And so as my mom was like going through this, my dad's going one way, my mom's going one way. They didn't sleep in the same rooms anymore. They barely talked. They were more like a partner than a couple. But other than that, my mom's brother would try to help here and there. He'll try to help them, just not understanding the mental health, not really grasping it, that it's, it takes a family to right. support one another. You said at 10 to 11, your uncle basically told you you were the man of the house. Around this time, you're going to public school and you're transitioning to private school when you're a little bit older. Tell us about your experience in public school and then that transition to private school. So yeah, going to public school all my life up into ninth grade. The schools that I were at, they weren't bad schools. They were actually like pretty good educational wise, but it's also mixed. Once you're in the school, it's a mix of people. So it can go either way. Some people, if they're fortunate to focus on the studies, they can go one way. Maybe sometimes their families are immigrants, sometimes like just not a lot of support, they can go the other way. And so just going through the public school system, see a lot of different things. You see a lot of adversity, diversity, and culture. Not to date myself, but I was going to middle school like in the early 90s. So it was a very different time back then. I remember the Rodney King riots were going off in LA, and that had the effects up here too with the African-Americans and Asian community. Gangs were big, Bloods, Crips, Nathaniel Serenos, starter jackets. God, I'm dating myself. Starter jackets was a thing. If you had a $100 starter jacket, it was a lot of money back then. It's like having an iPhone. It's $1,000. And if you're a kid, a high school kid, middle school kid, you fighting for that. Someone's trying to take it, you fighting for it. 
and it might cost some people some lives. And so that, that was a tough part. And San Francisco wasn't the same as it is now. It was still very expensive, but it wasn't like techie. It was like rich and poor. You have it or you don't. I think there was a lot of middle class. I can't really remember, but it was just a different time. A lot of different times back then. When you went to private school, Clint described this, this image of you when you were in private school. So Clint is a, one of our good friends, one of your really close friends, and he was an underclassman at the same time that you were going to high school. He was a guest on the podcast, so if you guys want to listen to him, he's on the podcast as well. But when he was growing up, he described you as the king of the campus. This is during private high school. You're the captain of the football team. You're the homecoming king. You're the prom king. But he said you never seemed quite comfortable being Asian in your high school. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was a difficult time going back from the last question from the public school to private school. It was a lot different. People... I don't know. They just seemed different. There was like different kind of wealth, different kind of education, different kind of feeling. I, I thank Clint for, uh, lack of better words, gassing me up. But to be honest, all that stuff was just check marks. I never in my life wanted to do X, Y, and Z. I had an idea, I think, just because of being an American Asian, like thinking that's the American dream. This is what you saw on TV. You want to be X, Y, and Z. But to be honest, it didn't really mean much. It was like cool, but not cool. Like whatever, that's just what you do. But yeah, definitely being in the school felt very different. Like not even just being Asian, I felt different from the other Asians themselves. And just being at the school in the beginning, I was always by myself. I just stayed by myself. How did you feel different? I just felt like different, like different culture. Just didn't didn't grow up in a private school system, so I didn't have a lot of friends coming in different from just the way we look. Like it was a lot of white kids. And when I started, I actually started the football practice. So it was like already intense. I, I guess you can call it bullying now. Like people are just like hazing each other, pulling like underwear up people's head and slapping them with like towels and stuff or getting thrown in a garbage can. And I wasn't about that. So I just did my thing. I never said anything back, just played. And so I think that was just one of the tough transitions coming in, trying to figure out what this new surrounding in my first year there, I kept my head down and just did me and just try to do school, hung out with a couple friends and really hang out with a lot of people. That was a tough part. I was like used to hanging out with big groups, hanging out with friends from basketball, friends from like martial arts, whatever, but coming in school. It sounds like you came from a more humble beginnings. You just worked hard, put head down, did your thing. And yet you became the man on campus. You think part of it was how you carried yourself that you differentiated yourself in not being part of all that bullshit and just being a real genuine guy. None of that appealed to you. And yet, yeah, you became the homecoming king. You became captain football team and all that. When you came into this private school and you felt you were Asian and there are other Asians in the private high school, but you felt different from those Asians. What does that mean? So, I mean, it goes back to like middle school. So I switched middle schools. I, I went for, I went to one school called Marina Middle School, and it was rough. Like I mentioned earlier, it was rough. Pretty much a bunch of like Asian kids fucked with me every day. And so my cousin was there too, but he only could do so much. So after a while, I was like, you know what? I was cool with like everybody else except the Asians. So I said, fuck it. If I'm not going to be here with these Asians, I'm going to go to Presidio where I play hoops with everybody else and whatnot. 
Presidio is actually the top middle school for uh, Plumpy School in San Francisco. Got there, ran into like my friends, kids I knew for a long time. Ran into some not so great character people, but they were cool ass folks. Did dumb stuff like we used to like tag and whatever. Sorry, mom, if you listen to this. Sometimes people will mess with us, and don't get me wrong, man. There's hella times where like, oh my god, it'd be like just the four of us, and there's like twenty people. All right, we gotta. You can't back down. If you back down, they're just going to mess with you even more. I never fought, but just don't back down. And usually things don't end up to a fight. And if it was a fight, it was like pretty bad. So in middle school, it's the funniest thing was my cousin was already at Sacred Heart. And one of his classmates tried to extort him for a pager. And the pagers back then was like a cell phone. It was like, <laughs> pager, you got this encore pager and it's the top whatever. And... Cousin was scared. This is my older cousin. He was like, yo, man, can you just give me this pager? I know you got a free pager. Let me just give it to him. I said, nah, homie. Nah, homie. So back then they had the directory. So we called the dude that was trying to extort him. And we're like, yo, man. My homie called him. He was like, yo, man, hey, leave. Blah, blah, blah alone. If you don't, we're going to kill you. <laughs> Not we'll kill you. We're going to kill your mom. You might want to edit that. But we weren't really going to do that. We were really going to do that. He like went up to my cousin next day. Hey, yo, it's cool. It's cool, mom. I'm sorry. Hey, just... Tell your cousin, tell your friends, don't mess with me. In my head, yo, we were a 7th or 8th grader. We just punked a sophomore. Think about that. When you were 7th or 8th grader, you, we were in middle school. We punked. Man. And so we Asian here, it's all about face. Like, spin it forward. If I was a sophomore and some like 8th grader was talking, I'm like, come on, bro, let's go. Bring it. Right? You want to try to kill my mom? Come, let's go. So that's when I knew going to the Sacred Heart. I was like, yo, man, these guys are fake. They're just older than us. They drive nice-ass cars. They were driving BMWs, trying to floss. Or if it wasn't that nice, it was like the Integra, but with a full body kit. Uh, it was like the 1995 brand new. I was like, man, F these fools, right? So we got there. I was like, man, I see these guys on campus. I'm like, man, I'm not feeling these guys. I'm not about the life anymore. We here at private school, you sneeze wrong, they'll kick everybody out. So I just kept my head down, just try to do what I try to do. And I knew these guys were fake because I was like, yo, man, we just punked you, bro. But it wasn't just him. There was other guys, like, class above me that like, I was, like, trying to get in my ear, like, yo, why you mugging? Why you doing this? Why you doing what? And it's like, man, in my head, I can't fuck you up, bro. We all get suspended. My mom worked hella hard for this. I can't get suspended and not get nothing out of this. So, you know, I always had to just keep my head down and do nothing. And so I just took it out. When I was able to play football, I took it out there. When I played Taekwondo, I took it out there. And so that's the truth is. I thought private school, these guys were soft because they come from privilege. And they got kicked out, they can just go somewhere else. We got kicked out, man, my mom just busted her ass for nothing. So I always try to keep that, like, just keep my head down and just keep on moving. At this point, Mike, it sounds like you, know, you had a very diverse group of friends. Even for today, it's pretty rare for a you know, Chinese or Asian American to be homecoming king and captain of the football team. How did you perceive yourself? Like, you just see yourself as Asian American first, or were you just, I'm, I see myself as American, and, or did you identify with your Asian roots at all at that time? Oh, definitely. Because, like, at that school, um, at private school, they'll let you know you're Asian. They, they'll let you know you're Chinese. They'll let you, they didn't know, they didn't know the difference between Chinese, Japanese, Korean. They didn't know the difference between wealthy or unwealthy. You know, they didn't understand our diverse backgrounds and our own right. inner circle issues. And so, I mean, I always saw myself as an Asian American, but the problem is living right outside of Chinatown. I, I literally live two blocks away from Chinatown, and they'll tell me I'm not Chinese. 
And then you go anywhere else, they tell me I'm not American. So I have no idea what I am. I'm just some dude. And so going back to your question about homecoming, King Prompy, all that stuff, it was cool at the time because I was like, yeah, check this out. Asian dude at your school but it wasn't like hey this is my goal this is what I want to do nah man I think going back to the Taekwondo upbringing it's like Ricky Bobby bro you got it first or your last that was the mentality you got to win the gold or you nothing so I held that mentality for so long not knowing that there was a second or third <laughs> like, literally it was like uh, captain football team cool you can do better Right? Homecoming team. All right, whatever. Cool. Mm. That's whatever. All right. You're just trying to be the best you can be. So you ended up doing so well in football that you went to City College of San Francisco to play football. And you guys won the JC NCAA Nationals. I know many of your teammates went on to play football in the NFL. What was that like? See, the funny thing is, that goes back to the last question is, every time I was in charge, we lost. So sophomore year captain, five and five. Freshman year, 9-0-1. Charge, sophomore year, lose. Junior year, 10-0, greatest in school history. Senior year, captain, 3-8. <laughs> Man, I got depressed, bro. I got depressed. I mean, and so I didn't want to go to a four-year. I could have went to state right out of high school just to go to school or anywhere they ever accepted a 3.0 or higher. And I went to City College just to I, – I needed to scratch the itch of playing football finished somewhere. And I almost went down to a different school called San Mateo, CSM. It just a skip throw away from San Francisco. I was going a little thinking about playing there and walking on. But one of my best friends, he was like, nah, man, why don't you just try for City College? They win nationals there. Let's go there. And being there, it was a very interesting, very diverse, like from the South, like kids were from the South, Midwest, all across the United States. And I didn't know that these guys were going to be NFL players or Division One players. They were just guys that, like, oh, man, these guys are hella good, right? And so just being able to practice with them, I wasn't that good out there. I, I didn't really play until, like, my second year. And even that, I only played a little bit, like, kickoff. When we were up, like, a jillion points, you get some run here and there. But the greatest thing, the greatest attribute, I would say, is I still talk to some of them to this day. And it just felt good knowing that I was able to like hang with some of these players who were division one players and talking to them. And they were saying like, oh, City College was a lot harder than wherever they went. Like It wasn't that hard until we got to the pros. And I was like, oh, shit, dang, City College, where you and I were running the same hill, like it was just as hard. All right, cool. All right, cool, cool. Okay. How did you end up at UCLA? Oh, man. So... After my second year, I was just going to go try to get to a random school to just try to play. At the time, San Jose State wasn't that good, but so they were trying to recruit everybody. Shout out to San Jose State. They just won the MAC first time ever. At the time, they weren't that good. So I was like, oh, yeah, we're not going there. Random school like in Kansas or Kentucky came out. I was like, hey, we'll give you a partial scholarship. Went out there for a week. You know, it was just no bueno. Came back. The coach who actually tried to recruit me, tried to say I needed him to go to school. I told him no. I actually had really good grades at the time. I think I was like at least a 3.5, maybe even closer to 3.8 from all the PE credits, getting all 4.0s in PE for football. Oh, just kidding. A buddy of mine was like, hey, man, like, why don't you just put another year in? He's a friend that I knew back from middle school. He also went to Sacred Heart. 
he got into Berkeley. And then he was like, yo, just trying to get to Berkeley. So I was like, that was my main goal, trying to get to Berkeley. Didn't get accepted. I got accepted to Davis in L.A. At the time, it was like a no-brainer. Okay, <laughs> got to choose L.A. And so got in there with, actually, yeah, with an Asian American Studies major. But I was going to switch over to poli-sci. But <laughs> end up really loving Asian American Studies. Yeah, you went to UCLA, Asian American Studies major. You joined an Asian American fraternity. And I think you told me that when you went there, you wanted to either become a politician, lawyer, or professor. But after UCLA, you picked a different career path. What did you do and how did you decide to do that? Yeah, so I think what happened in LA, I also got caught up with, no lot talking to a lot of our friends. Oh, I'm a, especially you, Will, I'm an engineer. I'm a computer side. What are you going to do, bro? I mean, I don't know, man. I'm going to go to law school. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I think that was an automatic answer, right? I think that's what everyone said. If they were in certain degrees, their everyone was going to be a liar. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, nah, man, I, don't, I, I didn't want to take standardized tests. I was really bad at testing. I think one of the main things, too, I don't know if I ever told you this, though. I wasn't that good in school. I can BS a paper. But I, I didn't know how to put my words together, and I struggled. And luckily, I had a lot of people that would help me write, but I was a really poor writer. And so then that intimidated me from going to pursuing law school. Even, I hate to admit it, I, I really wanted to be a professor at like in Asian American studies and promote education of our culture to others. But the GREs really scared me off. And so going back home, I had to make a decision. Went back home and I had to start working. And so I actually got hooked up with a job with a community-based organization working with students who were incarcerated in juvenile hall. And so I didn't really chose it. It just fell in my lap. Like I just got to interview and got hooked up. It wasn't that hard of a job. Show up, talk to kids at school, talk to kids at home. One-page report, send it in. But that's where things shifted and just working with these youth a lot of these kids, there were, I was working one as young as like 12 years old and the oldest to about 17. And then just a lot of it's redundant stories, depending on like their ethnicity. A lot of great kids, but just caught up with a bad situation, either a fight, stealing something, something like it's not all crime deserves the punishment. And then a funny story, actually, I was working with this one Asian kid. He got locked up because he was getting jumped every day. So he got tired of it, grabbed the bat, came back, and whipped the crap out of the guy who was jumping him every day. He got detained. So everybody's stories is different. And then what I realized that the system, once you're in the system, there's no really coming back. You're locked up, and then your main job is to go back to school. But if you think about this, say you're a freshman, you miss six months of school. How are you expected to go back to school every day? and pull grades. So you're already set up to fail. And that's when I realized working there for like about two years, this is just a band-aid. We're not really helping these guys. I think the best thing we can do is prevention and education. And luckily at the same time, I was like coaching basketball with another buddy who was just like, hey, yo man, you doing anything? Nah, so we started coaching basketball over a low. And then while I was working at the community-based organization and Coach, it was like two different worlds. Like, low, you got like the top kids of San Francisco. And then where I was working, it was like the opposite. But at the same time, they were both kids. It was the same thing. 
So you were a case manager at the same time as you were a basketball coach for Lowell High School. You're seeing both walks of life at the same exact time. Mm -hmm. So what is the difference between the worlds? Because they're the same age. What are you seeing? Yeah, going back to, yeah, so Lowell was a great experience. It's a plubby school, but I think it was still a testing system. So you still have to like test to get in. There's a running joke. It's like a private plubby school. It's a great school. It's a if you can get in, it'll save you thousands because it's as rigorous as any uh, private schools in the city. But yeah, working with the different kids from the day job and then coaching, like the difference is subtle, but at the at the same time, they were just they're all kids at the end of the day. They're all good people. They're all. I would say like some of the toughest kids that I worked with at the, on my day job as a case manager, if you peel the layer back, they're just kids, right? Who were, it's like the defense mechanism and it's just building relationships. And so that's the one thing I would say it's, it's also similar while coaching is building relationships. You got to show genuine on both sides. Both sides got to both still be genuine, Okay. But like at the end of the day, the difference is the home structure. Like I'm not saying all the low kids were great or and all the low kids were bad. You know what I'm saying? But general home structure. Some had more. You have mom and dad at home. Flip side, you know, at when I was case managing, you know, sometimes it just might be mom or just dad or a grandpa or just one parent or cousin. So I mean like that was like the tough part, just balancing because they're both the same age, yet lives are so much different. So the the case manager, that was your first gig, and that was already back in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then that's how you got interested and started getting into doing more counseling and uh, doing more of this type of mentorship type of work. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, working as a community-based organization. So I was a case manager. Mainly, it was trying to get the kids back on track, trying to get them back to school, trying to get them checking with a curfew. But it was just tough. Some of these kids lived in like some of these toughest neighborhoods. And they're kids too. How do you tell a kid, 13, 14 years old, how do you tell someone, hey man, summertime, you got to go home at 6 p.m. I don't care. That's what the court says. For most of them, they oblige. But after a while, I was like, yo, man, everybody's having fun outside. So, yo, they push the limit. They'll go out. But it all takes is one slip up. It all takes one mistake. They're in a car or something. The car gets pulled over. They pull everybody's records and boop, they're, they're back into the system. If you got like a public defender, you might get like a year probation. If you have your own private lawyer, you might only get like a month. So just seeing the adversity in, in, in the system. And so one of the deans was funny. One of the dean there, he used to work out with my uncle in martial arts. And he was like, why don't you always here, man? Why don't you become like a counselor or something? And that's what got in my head. Like, yo, maybe I should get into counseling and, and, and education and try to help these kids via prevention rather than post. Mm. Like, that's one of the main things I was like, yo, man, if I can get to education and do the prevention, we can't stop everything, but we can give the tools to help a student to make wise decisions. That's, you know, that's the main thing you can try to do. As a case manager, you were seeing the very end. So you couldn't really do much about it. All you could do was put the bandaid on. And that's when you realize that being a counselor is more important because that's preventative. Can you tell us a little bit of the, about the work you do today? As an academic counselor right now in the high school, 
big transition from what I remember when I was going to high school. Our Marshall studio is literally like a mile away from where Balboa is. And we had a lot of students from Balboa coming into our school. Tough, like just all street fighters. And that's one of the best thing I would say about my uncle's martial arts school was took a lot of people off the streets and just try to show them a different way. I would say that also influenced me to what I'm doing now today. A lot of the kids working with, it shifted a lot more academic, a lot great programs, a lot more kids going to UCs, private schools. But going back from the case managing and coaching, it's all about building relationships, building that, letting know students that were there for them. And it's tough. There's a lot of great kids who academically do great, but they might not have a lot of support at home. So you just have to be that adult sometimes like, hey, you're doing a good job. Keep it up. Push yourself further. And I would say at the end of the day, you have the 4.0 student, you have the student who's like getting kicked out every day. At the end of the day, they're all kids. And it's just building that relationship, finding something about them, knowing their birthday or something, knowing a, a toy or, shoot, sound old, video game, shoes, whatever they like, trying to build that common thread and get them bought into school. That's one of the main things right now. As an academic counselor, yeah, it's a lot of paperwork, signing off, letter of recs, and that's all the fluff stuff. That's the boring stuff. The fun stuff is actually just sitting down with a student, especially in a negative interaction. Sometimes kids get kicked out, and then you try to talk to me. You read the referral, talking back to the teacher, wouldn't put cell phone away, something like that. I feel like a detective because you read the report, and you say it back to the, the student, and the student's like, you know, the teacher gave me attitude. Okay, like, well, why today? Usually you're cool with them. And you start peeling back the layers, and you find out maybe they didn't eat last night. Maybe they didn't eat this morning. Maybe they're in the same clothes. There's a lot of things, a lot of factors you find out from the student aspect. And I'm just trying to let them know, like, hey, I'm hearing you. And next time something like this happens again, what can you do different? I totally empathize and sympathize what's going on. Reading the teacher report and hearing what you're saying was two different angles of the story. But um, just trying to advocate for them, build that trust. And hopefully if they trust, if they have a positive adult in the school, got them by and coming back every day. I, I think also the fact that you grew up in the neighborhood too, and you also had gone to a public school prior, then went to a private school. So you, you can relate to them in a way that perhaps even their own parents can't. So you can be that role model and be that kind of bridge. Going back to what I asked earlier, I'm curious from your childhood to what you're seeing today in the kids, what kind of a shift in mentality or the struggles or conflicts that they have, has that changed at all? You know, the stuff that you were going through versus what kids today are going through in a different era with like social media, perhaps with more pressure from the parents or not. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think that's the tough question to say, because I think growing up, we didn't have the avenue or space to talk about it. Talk about feelings, especially being male. You're taught not to show any weakness. Like if you talk, that's kind of like female tendency, feminine. I would say like 1990s, homophobia was still very rampant. Anything that is perceived as feminine was ridiculed. This is not PC, but if someone called you a bitch, you have to fight. If someone called you a fag. And, and, and please, this is not to offend anybody, but this, you had to fight back then. Because like no one to prove your manhood. And on top of that, being Asian, we were seen as docile or easy to be picked on and bullied. So that's something you have to quickly stand up for. Or I felt like I had to stand up for myself just so 
we wouldn't be continue to be picked on. Oh, yeah, stereotypes, Asians are weak, but not today. Today you're going to meet your match or I'll still get beat up, but at least I'm not going to punk out. For the kids today, I think they have a bigger space and platform to speak freely and to ask for help. The, the difference is social media also, I'm just sound like an old man, it's also the issue too, because now instead of, let's just say it was the four of us at school and one of you guys are picking on me or paging me or texting me, that, that was just one-on-one. But now with Instagram or Facebook or whatever they have, it's instantly live. Everything is recorded and it only tells one perspective of the story. It doesn't tell the whole story, what happened leads up to it. And it can be very depressing and very hard on the youth. So it's give and take. I think the feelings of being depressed and, and feeling left out, everything that students and youth are feeling today, we felt it as kids ourselves. We just didn't talk about it. I think it was hidden in like alcohol. Or like I had a lot of friends who would drink or smoke weed or do dance or whatever. Like they hid it better. That they hid the depression, not better, but they hid the depression, and so it came out in different ways. Or oh, hey man, hey, they, hey y'all, your boy's crazy, right? like he's wild, right? But nah, you're looking back, nah, man, he was going through a lot. I definitely can identify with that. We definitely probably suppressed a lot of the issues or questions we had, a lot of frustration, and it sounds like today they're able to talk about it, but it's a lot of confusion because of all of the information readily available and all the different perspectives and perhaps extreme kind of information that they're getting from social media online. There's a lot more you have to deal with on that front. Definitely a lot more check-ins, letting the students know that we're always there. I think there's a big shift to just say like the uses of drugs and alcohol. It was, it's the old school is no, just don't do it because it's bad. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, no, I understand this is the way you're coping. However, these are the effects of alcohol and drugs to your body and your brain. The one analogy I always use is, what happens if you eat like too much McDonald's, right? And, and no knock on McDonald's. I love McDonald's. What happens if you eat too much McDonald's, right? You know, like, you get big. Exactly. But how do you know you're big? You feel it. Maybe some of your friends and family, oh, you're getting big, homie. And you're like, okay, maybe I got to lay off of that. Drugs and alcohol, using the same comparison, people won't tell you you messed up, but you don't know you messed up until you messed up and it's already too late. All I'm saying is don't do it on campus. You can do it when you leave campus. Don't do it on campus. Make better choices. Let's, let's figure out why you're using before school. What, what happened before school, bro? Tell, tell me what happened. What, what happened during the day when you got to feel like you got to use? Just trying to figure out like, the root of it. And I'm, I'm not a clinician. And so like when they like down to talk, I'll get to the point. Okay, I'm glad you're willing to talk. I'm down to talk to somebody who's a little bit more professional, like, more, a little bit more about this topic so we can better support you. Can you tell us a little bit about restorative practices? What is that? Man, I can tell you the theory about it. I'm not that good at <laughs> I'm not that good running it. It's just trying to sit down two parties or it could be multiple parties and get everybody's side. The main thing is both sides have to agree to talk. It's a lot of pre-work doing it. Make sure you like, get their story. Also, having them prepared to listen to the other person and how the actions cause harm. It's not about trying to blame, like, you did this, but it's, I feel when this happened 
X, Y, and Z. Between the students or conflict between the teachers and students? Could or be anybody. Could be students. Uh, student teacher. I've seen a teacher once. <laughs> um, like so it's like team. a model of communication, like a model of, of, of like a, a way that you help communicate or help to facilitate some sort of, I guess, uh, conversation between, you know, two parties? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's something that's been put in the school system, starting as elementary school. It's a way to resolve the issue. Hey, Lee, you took my blanket. No, you took my candy. And then instead of grabbing it back and fighting you for it, we go have an RP. I'm like, hey, Lee, I appreciate you taking my candy. This is how it made me feel. And wow. Lee, you're like, hey, Mike, I was hungry. Yeah, man, that's why I took it. This is what's going on. In theory, it works really great. It mm. takes a lot of time. And so it works when there's a lot of, not training, but people who have time and are experts on this and then can do it. One of the biggest problems, it doesn't work. In my experience, it's just we don't have the staff and time to do it. There's sometimes these are like really big flaws and big incidents, which would take time if we had a couple hours a day just solely just to work on each individual. Mm-hmm. But our, our schedules, um, we're so understaffed and multitasking that it's not really run too well for when I practiced it. One of the things that I did to prepare for this interview was Clint told me a lot about counseling and what you've been doing. And one of the things that surprised me the most was that he told me you stopped the shooting. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, it, it wasn't really, I stopped it. I more tried to jump in to grab some kids off the streets. Long story short, it, it was some neighborhood stuff that's been going on for a couple of months. Not even neighborhood, there was like a conflict that's been going on a couple of months. One kid got jumped, ran back to the school, and told all his buddies ran out. And we ran out after our students. Car pulled up, popped the door open. It was like, do you know the movie Boys in the Hood? It felt like that movie Boys in the Hood. Yeah. And the yeah, I wasn't sure if it was a gun or not, but I was close enough if they shot. All we could do was at the time was just pull our kids. We're like we're just yelling at our like fifteen kids to get back into the school and telling those three cars like, it's good, just leave. Just leave. And wow. so it didn't really stop it. It <laughs> just more I think you probably are being too humble, but Clint told me that you stepped in front of the kids. In front of the, yeah, in front of the I mean, I just jumped and, in front of my kids. I just and you and you thought you were gonna die that day. I I thought of, yeah. So I jumped into the kids. I jumped in front of the kids to pull them into back into the school, which is still like I would say like two hundred feet away, and the car was like fifty feet away. I I didn't think I was gonna die until jumped in front of the kids, and I was like, oh man, this could be really bad. And it wasn't like trying to be like some hero or nothing. Like, like I said, anything I do is not for, it's actually dumb if you think about it. It's just trying to think of others and then not thinking about myself and the family. But at the moment of time, sometimes like these things happen, like things happen so fast. It's like the fight, flight, or freeze. And we need all three. And I, I always fight. Sometimes you need to freeze. And, <laughs> and sometimes you got to leave. And that. That's what I'm saying. Like these kids, their first um, thing is to go fight. Hmm. But are they really down to fight? Or is there just more mob mentality? And you jumping in and trying to explain to them, like, no, man, you can't. You don't, 
no, you don't do this. So you try to pull him away. Yeah, I, I was scared. I was scared. I was scared because I was like, man, this is not in my fight. <laughs> it's messed up. <laughs> I mean, we, I we can totally appreciate that. That was your first response, right? You just thought this is what you had to do to protect the kids. I feel like from this conversation too, you talked about how, yeah, they give you different types of tools and models, restorative practices. But for you, it's always been more about the connection and you're from the heart. Like everything you do with the kids, you do out of a place of genuine care. And that's what builds that type of trust where they can, they feel like they can come to you and you're able to really affect a lot of actual fundamental change in their lives. So I think that's really special. Oh, right on, right on. I would say like when I was younger, when I was like 25, when I first started this, the kids are like 16, 17, 18. So there's not that much of an age difference. Now that I'm like 40, these high school kids, man, they look like middle school kids. Everybody looked the same to me now. And even big kids, these 18, 17, 8 year olds, 6'3", you look at them like, man, I can see my seven-year-old in them. They're just kids. And, and I just can see myself at their age. I was like, I was doing dumb stuff. So I was like, they're not fully developed in the brain yet. And I'm just trying to just give them a chance. Hey, let's just finish this school and just try to model, model examples, right? Just model examples, what an adult does. Try to be a positive model. Don't get me wrong. I made mistakes. I yelled at kids before. And then the next day I like realized, hey, man, I got to apologize. I shouldn't have yelled at you like that. That's my fault. And I had some of them, man, get that weak stuff out of my face. And I'm like, I know, hey, I'm just trying to model to you what an adult does, adult male does, especially when they're wrong. So hopefully you know how to correct it one day as, as for yourself. So that's all we can do. What's the most, what's the most rewarding part of your job? Oh man. Seeing them when they start, no matter when they start the school, sometimes they come in freshmen, sometimes they come in later, but when they start and you see the struggles, like they're getting through school and they're going through life and whatever. And, and, and sometimes they hit the bottom and they pick themselves up and then seeing them graduate. Graduation is one of the, the best things to see. As an Asian American, I feel like we we all work hard. I don't want to knock that, but it's the stereotype. It's either an A or A minus is the Asian F, right? Yeah. I was a B student, so I was like forever head down. Just explaining that to the kids. They're like, well, what were you in high school? I was like, I was a bad student. When I first started, I was like, I was a bad student. I was a 3.0. That's good. And so just shifting that idea. Oh, I never thought that was good. That is really good for a lot of other people. And so just seeing them wherever they're at, overcome their struggles and get through. And so that's one of the most rewarding things. And then if I'm lucky enough to run into them later in life, I ran into a former student that just works at a Trader Joe's down the block. And he looks like he's doing good. He's working full time. That's the most rewarding thing to me. Never had a million, but like a, it's $100,000. If $100,000 felt that way, yeah. Hell yeah, they made it, right? They're going to survive. They're going to they're gonna make an impact on someone else's life. So obviously, schools have shut down since coronavirus started. So how have things changed for you uh, during this quarantine time? For me personally, I stopped coaching. I, I was going to stop coaching regardless. I was going to give up coaching football and basketball and spend more time with family. COVID shut it down for sure. So the, the the toughest thing right now is just being a homeschool teacher. I haven't been around my kids this long 
ever consecutively. And so I know they're tired of me. But like <laughs> the biggest thing, I think it's just, I think the, one of the main things I struggle with is internally, especially as we speak right now, we have like clear Wi-Fi, electricity, and then talking to the students who struggle with basic internet. They might have like, three people sharing like the Wi-Fi. Some people not good with technology. A lot of people are depressed. It doesn't matter if you're doing well academically down to not doing well at all. The baseline, everybody's depressed and losing motivation. But just carrying that in the back of my head every day, a little hopeless. I always try to feel like every day when I can talk to a student to try to I feel like it's like a, an actor. Shows on, smile on, just try to be as positive as possible, even though I'm talking to a blank screen. It's like showtime. It's almost acting. No matter how much I'm feeling, whatever I'm feeling a certain way, I know that I have to, I feel like I need to be a, a beacon of light. Maybe I'm over-exaggerating it. Maybe that's what they don't need, but I just feel like conflicted sometimes. You've seen a lot. You've grown a lot and you personally have experienced a lot. What do you try to instill in your kids or teach your kids that you wish you knew growing up? I, one thing I would just want to do is just to have them really just try their best and know that they did their best. And it doesn't matter if it's first or second or third or last, but if they have a good feeling that they tried and they, and they just have experience. I definitely want them to be well-rounded and able to travel. That's one thing my mom didn't do much as her childhood, like she just worked. And so she gave me the opportunity to travel and see the world and just experience other parts of the nation, other countries, and just to see the world and just get enriched in culture. And so that's one thing right now, but fortunately, before COVID was able to bring her kids around and, and not like a lot of places, but more than when we were ever kids. Right now, especially during COVID, be mental strong, got to be headstrong. I don't expect a lot education-wise because this is not, it's like a gap year. I just want them to stay consistent, have a routine. I think that's the biggest thing, what I see where other people are struggling is not having a routine. And so just want them to have a routine, get up, and just be good people, empathize. Like we, I, I used to take them around walks and take them to different neighborhoods and just let them know like, we're no better than anybody else here. Make sure you, you say hello. You look them in the eye. Just be compassionate and empathetic. And whatever they do, they go from there. That's their choice. But definitely, at the end of the day, I just want them to be respectful and just happy. Our audience generally, or even my friends in general, are more like the Lowell kids than they are the rest of the kids that you've seen and you've had relationships with. So they don't have as much of an insight or perspective into the world that you are a part of. What would you like to share with them? Or what would you like them to know? I don't know. Definitely, I think the biggest thing, what I want them to know is don't feel bad, don't feel guilty, don't feel this, don't feel that. It is what it is. And acknowledge that Including myself, we all have certain privileges. And somebody, either if it was us, or your parents, or your grandparents, someone grind for us to be here. And 
the kids I work with, or not even the kids I work with, the people we work with. It could be our coworkers. We could be working in a building and we see janitors or whatever. Just treat people nice, man. We don't know what they're going through. We don't know what struggles they go. We treat everybody as it was from the janitor to the CEO. Treat them the same, right? Sometimes, like, just the ball bounces certain ways. I don't understand why it does, but it does. And I just want to share to the, the audience or friends who we all gone through our own struggles. So I'll never knock on anybody's struggle. But that's what I'm just saying. We don't know what the other person's going through. So let's, if someone else is yelling at you, maybe they had a bad day, just let it go. And just hopefully act of kindness. Maybe not now with COVID, but open the door for somebody. Hey, if, if we try to hop an Uber or maybe we drive and someone cut us off, let it go. Like, whatever. And I think that's the biggest thing, just moving forward to 2021 is just have a little bit more compassion for one another. Man, we don't know what other people are going through. People are struggling right now. And I appreciate what we got. That's, you know what I'm saying? Like, you worked hard for it. I'm never going to knock someone who worked hard for it. Enjoy it. But think about what, maybe you don't go to Vegas and blow 10 racks. Maybe you go volunteer or something. I'm not saying never give away your money. That's your money. But maybe go volunteer. Maybe go read to somebody. Maybe go, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Whatever you're comfortable with. If you got the luxury to do that, maybe you know, spend some time doing that. That's one last question from me is to close this out on how people can potentially give back or get involved. I think hopefully this conversation has inspired some people that perhaps always had that type of interest or desire, but just didn't know how to go about it. So you mentioned like volunteering or what's the best way somebody like myself that has that interest, but doesn't know, you know where to go. Should they you know, reach out to you or perhaps their community? If you have any uh, tips, suggestions, we can also include in the show notes afterward as well. I got to really think about that. And no, no one really asks. <laughs> no one really asks how they can help. Yeah. Like it just it varies. It, it depends. Maybe you can offer internships, summer internships. There are certain programs that, for example, in our school, there's a law firm that comes in and they mentor the students for a year, give them a internship over the summer, and then continue to follow them their senior year. Hopefully it sparks the interest to poli-sci and whatnot. It's tough because there's also a lot of red tape to get through to volunteer because just the world we live in now. Elementary school, come in, volunteer. And right. Look, right? Since we live in a, a tech age, this is how you tie a proper tie. This is how you shake a hand. Resume, what's a new resume? I'm, I'm old. I'm like paper. Like what's an online resume look like? Maybe uh, like stuff like that. Can, we can create a site of something like YouTube sites. Like this is how you do X, Y, and Z. This is the resource. Nothing that will go out of one's way, if that makes sense. If you're not comfortable talking to students and it's like pulling teeth for you, don't do it. Whatever mm -hmm. you're good at, maybe yeah. make a YouTube video, uh, a Twitch, uh, whatever. Like you guys are young. You guys know the TikTok, whatever. whatever. Like, oh, we're not that young. <laughs> <laughs> you're younger than me, man. So I'm, I'm making, I'm throwing it up like the Twitch, the, the face snatch. Uh. <laughs> Final question, Mike, how can people find you? Oh, hey, best way to hit me up, you can always uh, email me, mikemar37 at gmail.com. That's the best way. You just reach out. You can always hit me up. We can figure it out and just go from there. All right. Thank you, Mike, so much for your time. It was an awesome. amazing conversation. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the episode. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to our channel. 
Feel free to share, comment, and any feedback on how we can improve this podcast would be great. You can find Will and I on LinkedIn or social media. Our contact info will be in the description and show notes. You can also find us by searching for Will and Lee Show on Instagram. Until next time.